Crossroad International Church podcast. We're so glad you joined us. It is our prayer that God will use this message to bring comfort to those who are hurting, give hope to those who find themselves in what seems to be a hopeless situation, and to encourage the one who is struggling through a difficult season of life. For more sermon audio, resources, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit CICKuwait.com. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome once again to CIC, our service. We're beginning, or not beginning, continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes called Vanity of Life Under the Sun. I think we have five more uh, lessons in this series, and then we will get into a Christmas series and then the new year. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And today we're going to do chapter 5 and 6, basically talking about how to live your life for God rather than yourself. That's basically the whole um, theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, is life under the sun is vanity, but life with God brings success and brings prosperity. And he starts off in this first few verses, verses 1 through 7, is our attitude of worship. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil." Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Verse 6. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the works of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity but fear God. Coming into the presence of God like we do here every week, when we meet together in our life groups or we meet together for prayer meetings or different times, anytime we gather together at the body as the body of Christ, two or three gathering together, Jesus is with us, and that is an awesome privilege and honor that you and I have to come boldly into his presence. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could come into the presence of God once a year. But you and I, under the new covenant, because of the blood of Christ, have the awesome privilege and the honor to come every day, every moment, into the presence of God. I've used this illustration before. 
I think, here. I remember reading one time of President John F. Kennedy was in a high-stakes meeting with one of the leaders of Russia. And right in the midst of the meeting, his little boy burst into the Oval Office and ran up, Daddy, 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 look. And in the middle of the meeting, President Kennedy took his little boy, put him in his hand, says, what? And as he opened his hand, there was a little frog. And he was all excited about the frog. And President Kennedy said, oh, that's a nice frog. We'll talk about it later. And shushed him out of the room. The little boy didn't care who dad was meeting with. He needed to see dad. And he just burst into the room, and it was okay. Don't be afraid to come into God's presence. Your heavenly Father is there for you anytime you need to see him. We have that honor, and we have that privilege. When we come into this place every Friday... We need to come into the house of God and come as listeners and learners. I'm sad to say, but too often our worship time is man-driven or me-driven. Many times our attitude is, okay, God, bless me. Okay, God, what do you have for me? where we should be coming in and saying, Okay, God, what can I do for you? How can I learn more about you? How can I listen to your voice? One of the things I really appreciate about my wife, and I can talk about her because she's not here today, and as you think, pray for her, um, she wasn't feeling well just before we left. But one of the things I appreciate about her is it doesn't matter what kind of week we've had. We've been married 44 years. Sometimes we have really fantastic weeks. How many of you married can say amen? amen. But sometimes we have really terrible weeks. How many of you that are married can say Amen. <laughs> If you can't, you're lying, okay? But even when we have a terrible week and I'm preaching, she says, I don't look at you, I listen to God. Amen? And so when we come to church, that's what we need to do, is we need to set our hearts to listen to the Spirit of God, not necessarily the person that's doing the speaking. When... We are worshiping up here, and we're singing. This is not a performance. These are not performers. These are people that are helping to lead you into the presence of God. So please, don't get your eyes on them. And one of the things that I worry sometimes is we have a lot of professional musicians in the church so please, if you're a professional musician or a music teacher or something and you're not up here, just concentrate on worshiping God and not trying to go, well, they missed that key or they missed that note or 
that, what, that transition wasn't exactly right. No, that's not what we're here for. We're here to come into the presence of God and to listen to Him and to learn from His Word. I got a quote here. It says, we are the unholy coming before the holy. We are the unrighteous coming before the righteous one. And we are the creation coming before the creator. So when we come into this place, we need to come learning and listening to God. Solomon gives us some instructions about public worship here in these first six verses. First, he says, walk cautiously. Approach God carefully. Approach God his way. He says, walk prudently when you come into the house of God. This is God's day. This is God's time. And we need to approach him with thanksgiving. And then Solomon says, listen carefully. Listen to God's word and respond appropriately. Now I'm going to have to confess to you many times when I hear someone preach and they say something, immediately I don't think, how does that apply to me? I think, how does that apply and think of someone else? Come on now, I know I'm not the only one that does that. You go, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They really needed to hear that. Well, no, if they weren't here, you are. You're the one that needs to hear it, okay? So we need to respond appropriately. And speak sensibly. Be very careful what you promise to God. Sometimes you get in trouble. Rash vows made to God. The story in the Bible of a man that had a great victory. He vowed, when I get home, the first thing that comes out of my door, I'm going to offer as a sacrifice to God. And he gets home and his daughter walks out of the door. Don't make rash vows to God. Be slow to speak. Let your words be few. Another problem I have that I know none of you have is sometimes the gears of my mouth begin to work before my brain is engaged. How many of you ever said, well, I just spoke before I thought? Well, that's our main problem is if we think sometimes before we speak, we won't say some of the things we shouldn't say. And then act decisively. If you make a vow to God, keep it. It's one thing to break a vow to one another. It's a totally different thing to break a vow you've made to God. Live faithfully. Because God will hold us accountable both here and in the hereafter. And then live relentlessly demonstrate godly fear and respect for the almighty who redeemed you when we come into this place we come here as an awesome time to come into God's presence and to meet with him and to hear 
from his spirit. There's a lot of work that goes on to put one of these services together. A lot of practice with the worship team, Dell and I, and anyone that speaks spends time preparing messages. And our desire is that when you come, you don't hear from us. You don't look at the worship team, but you have an encounter with the Spirit of God. And then right in the middle of all of this, he throws in a couple of verses that talks about the government. Verses 8 and 9. He says, If you see oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high officials watch over high officials and higher officials over them. Moreover, the prophet of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Solomon basically is saying in all governments, in all man-made organizations, there is a tendency toward injustice. As I shared last week, the world may not be fair. Life may not be fair, but God is always faithful. God is always faithful. See, we should not be surprised when corruption is unearthed in the government, in our organizations, in schools, even in churches. Because every man-made organization, every time people gather together, we're all human and there is a propensity for corruption to come out. But Solomon says, if we're living for ourselves, if we're living for our own kingdom, that's what happens. But when we live for the kingdom of God and put his kingdom first, then these things do not have to be. Verses 10 through 17, he talks about the burden of our possessions. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owners to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this is also a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so he shall go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All the days he does eat in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Verse 10 literally says in common language, 
you never have enough. John D. Rockefeller at one time was the richest man in America. And someone did an interview with him and they said, Mr. Rockefeller, when will you ever have enough money? He says, when I get one more dollar. See, it doesn't matter how much we get. It doesn't matter how much we have. We always want a little bit more. A little bit more. A recent survey revealed that most people, now this is in the United States, may be different where you're from, but most people in the U.S. believe that they would be satisfied if they could win $5 million in the lottery. But statistics have shown that even when someone wins the lottery, it's normally within two to three years they are broke and miserable and trying to get the next lottery ticket. You know the old saying, easy come, easy go. The more you have, the more it costs to keep it. You win $5 million in the lottery and you will soon find out how many relatives you have that you never knew existed. And how many friends you have that you've never seen before but they need something from you. The more you have, the more it costs to keep it. Just think of coming up in a few months for us in America, April 15th. The more you make, the more the tax man wants. I think it's the same in the UK and most of Europe and around the world. The more you make, the more it costs. So the whole purpose here is don't live for stuff. Live for God. Let stuff be a tool. I had somebody say one time, money is just a tool. Just like a hammer for a carpenter is a tool. Now, I love to do woodwork. I love to build cabinets and furniture and things like that. And I have an assortment of four or five different hammers of different sizes for different things. But I do not have a whole workshop full of hammers because I don't need that many. We do not collect and save and store up tools. We use tools. So I just want to encourage you today that money and stuff are tools that God puts in our hands for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Some of it we need to use on ourselves, not a problem. God wants you to take care of your family. In fact, the word says if you don't take care of your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. But God doesn't want us to consume it all on ourselves. More, more, more. We get our dream home and after a few years, 
It's no longer the dream home. We have a new dream home that's bigger, better, those types of things. You get your dream car in a few years. It's not quite so shiny, doesn't smell quite so new. So we have a new dream. But guess what, folks? Everything you have, everything you make, everything you save, everything you accumulate, you're not going to take it with you. I heard the story of the man that took a million dollars out of the bank and put it in suitcases and put it in his attic when he was on his deathbed. He told his wife, he says, when I die and I go, I'm going to grab it, take it with me. He died. They had the funeral. His wife goes to the attic and there's the suitcase with the million dollars in it. She said, I told him to put it in the basement. <laughs> you will never see a trailer attached to a hearse taking your casket to the cemetery because everything you will leave behind except the treasure that you lay up in heaven. Store your lasting treasures in heaven. Use your stuff for the kingdom of God. J.C. Penney, who farmed the J.C. Penney Corporation in the U.S., used to be a really huge department store complex, not so much anymore. But he was a fine Christian man, and he gave 90% of his income to the kingdom of God. And people used to complain because of his opulent lifestyle, because of the big fancy cars that he drove and the huge house that he lived in and all of the wealth that he had. And he said, well, if you give like I give, you could probably live like I live. He says, I can't spend the 10% that's left over because God has blessed me so much. I don't know when he died many years ago, but a few years ago, my daughter was blessed by J.C. Penney because she went to the College of the Ozarks in Branson, Missouri that is underwritten by money that was left by J.C. Penney to educate missionary kids and kids that live in that part of the United States. His legacy is living on many years after his death. Why? Because he laid up treasures in heaven and he took his earthly possessions to use for others, not just himself, and he ended up having more than he knew what to do with because he gave away as much as he could. Lay up your treasures in heaven. And then we look at some principles of godly living in verses 18 through 20. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. 
As for everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You can make money but not have enough to enjoy yourself but other people enjoy it and what he means by that is if you spend all of your time making money and making more money and never have time to spend with your family never have time to enjoy what you're making maybe your priorities are wrong See, the fact is, I can look at my financial situation with a tragic and negative view. I don't have enough for what I want. But I found out with God, I've always got enough for what I need. Remember one time as a missionary, I was sending out newsletters and traveling around trying to raise a whole lot of money for a brand new Land Rover to use in the bush of Africa. Because see, if I drove into a village with a brand new Land Rover, then I would look like a prosperous missionary. And after about four years of trying to raise money, this was in around 1995, after raising all of that money for what I wanted, you know what I ended up buying? A 1972 Land Rover. This was in the 90s. I wanted a new one. But what I needed was a 1972 Land Rover because it got me where I was going. And when I got to those villages, I wasn't looking like the prosperous Western got everything missionary. They actually accepted me because my vehicle was older than some of the vehicles in the village. See, what I wanted had me looking for stuff. What I needed, God could have provided several years before if I had just said, God, just give me what I need, not what I want. See, I used to misquote scripture. God will provide all of my wants. That was what I thought. I never said that. But in my mind, God will provide all of my need according to his riches and glory. That somehow that word was translated in my brain, want. Now, I know none of you do that, so... You can say, oh, I can't believe my pastor used to think that way. But we always want more than we really need. Think about it. See, we should not contemplate exclusively on tomorrow because tomorrow is never promised. 
We should live with joy, passion, and pleasure in a relationship with the Heavenly Father today. You can't do anything about tomorrow. You can only live today. You do realize tomorrow never comes. Because when you get to what you think is tomorrow, what is it? It's today. So you say, oh, Saturday is tomorrow. Well, when you wake up on Saturday, is it tomorrow? No, it's today. So you can't live tomorrow. And you can't live yesterday. You can only live today. So live for God today. And then in chapter 6, Solomon gives us two contrasting outlooks on life. One is negative and one is positive. Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all of his desires, Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. So this negative outlook on life is I can't enjoy my money. I raise it, I make it, and it seems like it doesn't matter how much I make, it's like I'm putting it in a pocket with holes in it. You can make money, but not have enough to enjoy yourself. Other people will enjoy it for you. Warren Risby says, The enjoyment without God is merely entertainment, and it does not satisfy. But enjoyment with God is enrichment, and it brings true joy and satisfaction. When we live without God, we're miserable. When we live with God, we have joy and peace regardless of the circumstances. See, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is related to the circumstances of my life. Joy comes because I have a relationship with the Creator with God, my heavenly Father. Verses 3 through 6, it talks about I can't enjoy what I have. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered in darkness. Though it was not seen the sun or known anything, it has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not, do not all go to one place." See, Solomon finds that it's more than conceivable that a person may be blessed with abundant children, with abundant 
finances and still be miserable when they don't know him, Father. Some of the most miserable people in the world are on the top 20 wealthiest people in the world list because they live for money, not for God. One of the richest men in the world, I think he's number four or five, believes that we're all just living in an alternate reality and nothing here is real. So it doesn't matter what you do, there's no consequences because this isn't real. This is just a a video game. I think he watched The Matrix too many times or something. I don't know. But he's a genius and he's wealthy but he's whacked out in the brain because he lives for himself, his intellect, and his money, not for God. Verses 7 and 8. And some of you may can relate to this. He talks about, I work too much. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more? Has a wise man than a fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? I work too much. The Jewish psychiatrist, Dr. Frankel, was arrested by the Nazis in World War II and he was put in Auschwitz, the death camp. When he was arrested, he was stripped of everything that he owned. All of his property was seized. His family was taken away. All of his possessions and his life's work on a manuscript that he had sewn into the lining of his jacket, which the jacket was taken away, was gone. His life's work was to reflect on the meaning of life. After the war was over and he was released, he finally rewrote that manuscript and the title was Man's Search for Meaning. And he said this, There is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning to one's life. He who has a why to live can bear any how. So let me ask you today, what is your why for living? Is it just to make a lot of money, to have a lot of things, or is it to please our heavenly Father? And then in verse 9, he turns to a positive outlook on life. In verse 9, he says, I can learn to be content. Better in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This is vanity and the grasping of the wind. Basically, Solomon is kind of saying the old phrase, better is the bird in the hand than two in the bush. He says, our job in life, we need to be content with what we have now, 
not striving on what we wish we could get. It's better to have a little and enjoy it than to dream about much and never get it. The key is putting our focus on God, not on stuff. We should be as content when our pockets are empty as we are when our pockets are full. Because God takes care of us. And then in verse 10, he says, I can live to the best of my potential. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. God is sovereign. And we can want things to change, but I'm sorry, you can't change God. God is sovereign. And then in verse 11 and 12, the end of this chapter, Solomon says, I can make the most of each day because God controls my future. I don't control my future, God does. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? George George Orwell, in the book 1984, if any of you have read it, he made this statement. The one who controls the past controls the future, and the one who controls the present controls the past. It is evident that man has been unable to exercise any control over his destiny, yet he persistently seeks to discover what the future Holes. We cannot understand or know what the future holds. And we do all kinds of things trying to find the future. A lot of Christians go from meeting to meeting where the great prophets are trying to get a prophetic word from God of what their future is. I have read of presidents and heads of states that have gone to astrologers and they've gone to numerologists and all of these things to try to find out the future and how do I make a decision. Businessmen have made decisions on the turn of a single tarot card. And it's all in a vain attempt to unlock the code of tomorrow. There's only one that holds the key for tomorrow, and that is God Almighty. I hate to tell you there is no ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, or Christmas future. Destiny lies in the hands 
of a sovereign God. There's an old Navy joke that goes like this. Voice one, divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice number two, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. Voice one, this is the captain of a U.S. naval vessel. I say again, divert your course. Voice two, no, I say again, divert your course. Voice one, do you understand that we are a Navy warship? I command you, divert your course. Voice two, I am a lighthouse, your choice. It's one of the great delusions of our time that the exertion of human power can change the shape of the reality of God. But the fact is this. The reality of God is a solid rock. And upon that solid rock of God's reality is a lighthouse called His Word. And we can either alter our course to take account for what is written in His Word, or we can keep on going until God imposes His Word upon us on Judgment Day. We can insist, we can talk, we can use authoritative words, but the reality of God will not change. Only we can change. So let me ask you today, when you are confronted with the reality of God and what He wants, do you get belligerent like that captain of that naval warship and command, I'm going to keep my course, you move? Or do we realize that it's the lighthouse talking to us and if we keep on our course, there's going to be a disaster. Some of us have our plans. We've set the course for our life. And then we read in this book and it doesn't line up with the plans and the course that I've set for myself. And we've got a choice to make. Do I change or do I ignore his words? Peter, if you'd come up. I want to close with just a little piece of my testimony that goes along with this last thing about the reality of God and his word. I grew up in the deep south in the United States and I was taught from very young that I was better than anyone whose skin was black or darker than mine. The house that my wife and I own today was built with slave labor that was owned by my ancestors. So all of my life, I was very racist and very prejudiced. 
And then in September 1976, I met a man named Jesus. And I started reading a love letter that he wrote to me. And I read in that book that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, but we're all one in Christ. And I came to a drastic crossroads in my life. My culture taught me that I was better than black people. My family taught me that I was better than black people. Even the church I went to taught me that I was better than black people. But his word said we're all the same because we're his kids. So I had a choice to make. Stay with my culture. Stay with my family background. Stay with even the doctrines of the church I grew up in. Or turn away from all of that and follow the word. And I made a conscious choice to follow the word. And as a result, I lost all of my friends. Most of my family had to find a new church. Ended up in Bible school. The only black guy in our Bible school sat right next to me. Became my best friend. Then God sent us to Africa as missionaries. He asked me to give my life for the people I grew up hating. And then almost six years ago, my oldest son adopted a little African. So now I've got a grandson that if I had gone the way that I was raised, gone the way I had been trained and instilled that in my son, I wouldn't be able to enjoy James as my grandson. This wasn't in my notes. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I think there's somebody here today that you may be at a crossroads. You've seen some things in God's Word that are different than what you were taught. God may be having you reach out to people that you were raised thinking they're not worthy of you reaching out to them. But I want to tell you that God's word is a lighthouse that's seated on the rock of the Heavenly Father. And either you change your direction or you're headed for disaster. Because God never changes.
Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that we can live every day because you hold our future. Father, help us never to set our own plans and our own strategies and our own desires in stone. But Father, help us to always hear that still, small voice that says, go this way or go that way. And Father, when we hear the word coming from the lighthouse of your word that says change your direction, change your course. That, Father, we are quick to listen and quick to obey because even when we don't understand and even when life is not fair, you are always faithful. Father, help us to be laying up treasures in heaven and not treasures on this earth. Father, help us to get beyond our biases and our prejudices and our old worldview. And Father, help us to see everyone through your eyes of faith. Help us to see everyone through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you once again and we thank you that you are a wonderful, wonderful heavenly Father. And you want what is best for us. And Father, even when we don't understand, if we will obey, then we will have a joyful life. Doesn't mean there won't be trials and there won't be temptations and there won't be hardship. But Father, when we walk with our hand entwined in your hand, and Father, we walk in the joy of the Lord, and your joy brings strength to live for you. And we give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.